0: help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we discussed individual pension plans and retirement compensation arrangements with Ryan Ackers from GBL. We did. And that was a good discussion. So for anybody that's a business owner or who has a professional corporation. You should go listen to that one because it might be beneficial to you as they describe an individual pension plan as a supercharged RRSP. Right on. This week though, we're going to go in a slightly different direction and we're going to talk about do-it-yourselfer, the old DIY. You know who you are and let's be honest, there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there. Exactly. And probably everyone is a do-it-yourselfer to some extent. So let's dive in. But, but oh. there's limitations to do it yourself.
2: Right on. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to about. talk about that today. Where this all came up is the other day we were having a conversation with our very own Steve Molina
1: about what we did on the weekend. And now are we giving Steve Molina a hard time about being a do-it-yourselfer? Of course we are. Yeah, that's what we're going to do okay. right now.
2: So Steve shared with us that he had spent the weekend painting the trim in his house, including along the gables, which from what I could tell from the pictures he sent us were about 25 feet above the ground. He did implement safety measures. He had his daughter
1: standing inside the house, reaching out of a window, hanging onto the ladder. The 15-year-old daughter, let me rephrase this. You said inside the house, reaching through an open window to hold the ladder that her dad was up on. I believe that's true. Sounds good. So now listen,
2: Steve is a self-confessed do-it-yourselfer. He does home improvement projects, landscaping, and he works on his car, changes his own oil, which you don't see every day, but many people do. So- I started thinking about what is it that motivates people to take on projects or activities outside of their primary area of expertise? In Steve's case, Steve provides investment advice and planning expertise to our clients. And he's really good at it. And he's very good at that. And so what is it that motivates a guy like Steve? And clearly, over the last many years, the growth in home improvement stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, and more, people are tackling projects
1: that previously they might have contracted out. And probably during COVID, there's more people doing do-it-yourself projects than there was pre-COVID. I would think so because
2: there's certainly not that I follow too closely what Home Depot's earnings are, but I understand that their earnings were completely off the chart. I think just reported this past week. So DIY or do-it-yourself extends beyond home improvement or construction projects. And I think because of the availability of lots of online resources, these days, people can write their own wills, they can sell their homes without a real estate agent, and they can make their own investment decisions and security transactions, including buying and selling stocks, options, mutual funds, ETFs, so on. So I was thinking like, what is it? What are the motivations for taking on activities outside of your specific area of expertise that you otherwise might have hired a professional for? And, So I did a little research on this, and Colin, what would you think is the number one reason why people do things themselves? Well, I was going to say self-esteem, but I think the answer is money. They're both correct. But money, certainly on the economic side, money is one of the main reasons. And it's not just about saving money. So lots of people want to look at what's the best way to spend their money, and so they might reallocate money to other things. So if they save money by doing their own tiling in the bathroom, for example... They might be able to buy higher quality tile or replace the fixtures in the bathroom as well.
1: But what so, about the opportunity cost of that, Greg? So if somebody's like tiling their own bathroom, they're spending their time doing that. Exactly. And when we get into
2: some of the reasons why people might want to hire a professional, that's certainly one of them. Some people actually believe that they can do a better job themselves. They think that outside contractors don't have the same pride of workmanship and the pride of ownership that they have in their own houses, so they might treat their own house better. Sometimes lack of availability. If you're in high demand times, a construction boom or Calgary after a hailstorm, for example. Every summer. Every summer. It might be difficult to find people to do what you need them to do. And in other cases, and I've certainly run across this, in many cases, jobs are too small for professionals to want to take on. Trying to bring in a plumber just to fix a leaky faucet. You're going to spend $200 just for the guy to drive to your house, let alone what he's going to do. And so people might take on projects like that just for that reason. And then another motivation, which you brought up, is identity enhancement. Like there's a number of sources of identity enhancement or self esteem that can come from this. You can achieve a feeling of empowerment. You have a good result. You're empowered to take on further projects. It makes you feel more independent, not at the mercy of other professionals, that kind of thing. You can also build an identity as a craftsman, as someone who doesn't need help to do certain tasks or being able to do something other people can't do. And there's a strong feeling of accomplishment there. And another thing is just being part of a whole do-it-yourself community. So lots of people involve other people's in their projects, family members, friends come on over and we're going to build a deck or something like that. And it can be a kind of a community thing. So
1: what it reminds me of Greg is the plumber paradox that we've talked about in the past. So for the listeners out there, all four of you that are listening to this, the plumber paradox was, how did that go? So you're, no, it was the locksmith paradox. The locksmith, right. that's right. Your lock is broken and you have somebody come out who doesn't have a lot of experience and they spend all day working on the lock and you feel bad for them because they've spent eight hours working on this lock and they finally sort of fix it and you feel like you should pay them a lot for their services, Exactly. Right? But then you have an expert that comes out and he fixes the lock in 15 minutes, charges you the same amount that you paid the previous person, and you feel ripped off.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And what you're paying for, of course, is expertise. And you feel that there wasn't enough activity to justify the cost. But in the end, he solved the problem. He just did it in record time so.
1: And Greg we're not being hard on do-it-yourselfers. Not at all. Like actually I'm very envious of people that can do a lot of this work by themselves and there's also a lot of people out there when you talk about a craftsman I mean that might be somebody who is working on a craft that will take them through retirement years.
2: Exactly I know many people actually who really enjoy woodworking and in their spare time they're out in their garage they have all the tools and they make wonderful things. As you say it's very admirable. It becomes a
1: Source of enjoyment and pride. So what about you, Colin? Are you a do-it-yourselfer? I've dabbled in this stuff, but I know my limitations. My wife and I used to have an argument every year when we had a trailer, an RV, because you have to winterize it every year. And I didn't know how to do it. I would pay somebody some lump sum of money to come and winterize the trailer. And Leanna, my wife, would get mad at me and because we paid for this service. And I'd say, well, listen it took that person 20 minutes to do something that would have taken me three hours. Was it worth it? I think so. Now, other things I have done myself, and you kind of know when maybe you shouldn't be. Like I've done some home reno projects where you're moving wiring around. It's like, I don't really feel safe doing this. Exactly. (laughs)
2: That's one that I often get caught up with because yes, changing a light bulb, I think that's certainly in my wheelhouse. Replacing a light fixture, I have done. And really, when you think about it, it's pretty simple. There's only two wires in there, sometimes three. And so you just kind of put them together and screw on one of those little marettes, I think they call them, and away you go. But then when I'm doing it, it's like, well, okay, now, gee, like what could go wrong? Well, maybe I didn't exactly screw these things together properly. What if a wire comes loose, shorts it out or something, starts a fire? Yeah, burns your house down. Exactly. And all because I replaced a light fixture myself. And so... Lots of people would do that without batting an eye and others would say, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in that kind of thing. So we all do it. And as you say, I think the secret is to know your limits. So clearly there's lots of reasons to take on these do-it-yourself projects. And the question that you just asked is just because you can do something yourself, does it mean you should do something yourself? And without making any value judgments on that point, let's just look at some of the reasons why you might want to consider using a professional to do things that you could do yourself. Number one, I would say, is safety. So just a little statistics from back in eight years ago in the US in 2012, there were about 9 million non-fatal falls from ladders that were treated in the emergency room. Steve? Yeah, Yeah, that's a lot. Steve, 9 million falls from (laughs) ladders, the most common injury in the home. Now, and of course, there's other types of injuries that include cuts and eye injuries. And if you're using power tools, obviously there's more chance of that. So that's one, expertise. Right now with YouTube and other easily available information sources online, you can certainly learn to do things by watching. But there's lots of things, as you mentioned with the locksmith, experience can allow professionals to do the same thing faster, maybe better. And I know, speaking personally, when I look at YouTube videos and then go try to do something, what I'm looking
1: at is never exactly the same as it is in the video. Or they make it look so easy on the video, don't they? Exactly. I do have to give a shout out to all these people that post these videos, though. Because if you want to know how to do anything, just look it up on YouTube. Chances are somebody's put a video up. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic source of information. But
2: again, in some cases, there's no replacement for years of experience. The quality of the work. I don't know if you've ever tried to put up drywall or even patch a hole in the wall. Greg, I have drywalled... Lots. And you know how difficult it is to get smooth joints, the mudding. It's an art. It's more than just
1: sort of an activity. It's an art. And Well, let me talk about that for a minute. So going back to your thing about limitations, hanging drywall isn't that hard, but mudding and taping is the tricky part. Exactly. So in our experience, what we would do is hang the drywall and then hire somebody to do the mudding and taping. Probably a smart thing to do.
2: So another reason why you might want to use a professional is just the true cost. Lots of people take on do-it-yourself projects as a way to save money and, or reallocate money, as I talked about earlier. But in the long run, it could cost more. If something doesn't go exactly as you expect it to, you might need to pay someone to repair what you've already done and spent time and money on already. So there may be extra costs that you're not actually considering. And this one, which is uh, fairly important that you mentioned, is time. Lots of people are willing to spend Time on their do it yourself projects and activities because of a sense of satisfaction or accomplishment, or they enjoy
1: it, and that's great. But again, it does take time
2: away from something else.
1: Your free lunch. Like free lunch is an economic term for opportunity cost. So every minute you're spending doing drywall or something else, you're not spending doing something else.
2: That's right. You hear stories of people, in often cases, And this is not being sexist, it's just that often cases you hear of a a husband who might be the do-it-yourselfer and spends hours or all weekends or evenings working on projects and that's taking time away from the family or your kids as they're growing up. It's a choice you make, but it is a cost. And the last thing maybe I'll say is maybe the right tools for the job. Everything's easier when you have the right tools. You're not going to fix your car with a hammer and a screwdriver, so you need the right tools. And not only that, you also know how to use them properly. You can go rent any tool you want these days,
1: but if you don't know how to use it. Let me make a note on that. There was this thing I studied years ago called collaborative consumption. Oh yes. This is where, like, do you have a drill at your house? I do. Yeah. Like everybody owns a drill. Do you need the drill or do you need the hole? (laughs) Like you need the hole, but why does every household need to own a drill to produce a hole? I don't know, once a year, whatever it is. So collaborative consumption would be like, why don't we all just like share some of those? Share tools, things. exactly.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think we're getting into the age of sharing. We've got ride sharing, we've got home sharing through Airbnb. So. so what does this
1: have to do with investing though? What are we talking about here?
2: Well, it turns out a lot because of course, do-it-yourself investing is something that's very popular right now. And we'll talk about why it's popular and just get into a little bit of the background of it. So the origin of do-it-yourself investing actually Goes back to May 1st, 1975. They actually call it May Day. And what happened on that day is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. made a fairly radical change. That was the day they allowed brokerages to charge varying commission rates. So prior to that, all brokerages charged exactly the same set fee for transactions. And as you can imagine, that wasn't a low fee. And at that point, they essentially deregulated fees and allowed low cost or discount brokerages to be created. And I believe Charles Schwab was actually the first discount broker in the U.S. And of course, the thing with discount brokers is they offered lower commissions, but didn't provide any advice. And in those days, so you would phone up the company, you would tell them what transaction you wanted to make by me, 500 shares of some company, and they would do the transaction. 500 shares of Enron? Colin, are we recommending people buy Enron shares? Well, we can't (laughs) because it doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. So you could do that. And so that was really the beginning of what we now know as online discount brokers. So here's a pop quiz. What was Canada's first discount brokerage? No idea. It was a company called Disnat, formed in 1982, and it was later acquired by Desjardins Securities, still in existence today.
1: When it's called Disnat, I assume it was owned by Disney, but it's not, right? (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah.
2: That's right. And so... Listen, this gave rise to the do-it-yourself investor who conducted their own stock research and used discount brokers to execute their transactions. And over time, the opportunities for do-it-yourself investing became even more dramatic when investors could access their discount accounts online and complete their own trades themselves without the help of a telephone contact. And so TD launched Web Broker in 1996, and that was Canada's first online discount brokerage account. So over the late nineteen nineties, I got into the business in sort of the mid nineteen nineties, and as the technology bubble was just beginning to form, and lots of people wanted to get on board and participate in the mania, which of course became a bubble as we now know in hindsight. And pretty much at that time, everything was going up for years in a row, so you could pretty much throw a dart at a Nasdaq listing and pick a winner. But we all also know that that ended badly in March two thousand, and there was a lull in the action. You didn't hear a lot about discount brokerages for a few years as that bear market lasted for almost two years. But fast forward, now we're into the late 2010s and the game is changing again. Online brokerages are providing access to virtually all the information available to professional money managers, investment advisors, that kind of thing. You have data and charting capabilities, and you also have packaged advice in terms of asset allocation program, there's planning software available, et cetera with do-it-yourself investing, this new availability of information and ease of access, good thing or bad thing?
1: Well, I think what we're going to talk about is the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there's pros and cons to everything. Just like we talked about Steve painting his own house, gave him some purpose for that weekend, gave him a sense of self-satisfaction and that can't be discounted. But so as it relates to investing, the good in do-it-yourself investing is that discount brokerage in general has been good for investors by breaking this monopoly of trading. So as a result, the costs for transactions have come down significantly. And in the US, you can actually trade for free. Canada's not quite there yet. No, but it's still pretty cheap. five ninety five dollars a trade or something like that. So there's little barriers to trading ability for investors. So they are able to trade on their own. There are many investors who are capable of doing the research and educating themselves on investing and have the right temperament to execute their investment strategies at this low cost. That's a pro. There's many digital platforms that provide model portfolios using exchange-traded funds, which, as you know from previous podcasts, are often preferable to buying individual stocks. And Yep, you get diversification that way and low costs, so why not? And we would align with this. If there's an investor out there that is choosing between trading individual stocks or following a model exchange traded fund portfolio, we'd say- Way better. The model's better. Way better. And there's people who do not want or value advice and don't like to pay for it. We've had conversations like that with clients
2: over the years. If you want to do it yourself, I mean, you don't need to pay me. And there's no hard feelings,
1: by the way. This is great. This is your choice. I wonder what that person would have done March of 2020 when the market went down. So let's get into the bad part because right. those are all pros. Like you are able to do it. Executing a trade is simple. Finding the buy or sell button on a trading platform is pretty easy to do. There are some limitations to that though. Like when you're buying or selling a small stock, for example, and you put your price in at the market price, you could actually move the price of that stock significantly. Exactly. And that's something that do-it-yourselfers might not know. We
2: might not consider liquidity and things like that, for sure.
1: Yeah, so the cons. The fact that trading is free actually encourages people to be more active, which can be a dangerous activity exactly. at times. So you pointed out there was a paper in 2000 from Barber and Odean. Odean, right? yeah. Odean? Odean, Odean, yeah, Terry Odean, Terry yeah. Terry who looked at over 66,000 discount brokerage accounts. Now, this is 21-year-old data already. So that number is going to be way bigger today. Oh, absolutely,
2: yeah. This was back from the early days of discount brokerage when things really took off in the early to mid-90s and the late 90s, Yep.
1: But on average, what they found was that clients of discount brokerages or households of discount brokerages tended to underperform the market return by somewhere between 1.1% 1.1% and 3.7% per year. Now that doesn't sound like a lot when you talk about it over one year, but when you compound that over 20 years. Oh, huge. So yeah. let's just say on average it was two and a half percent because that's somewhere in the middle. So 20 years of two and a half percent difference per year compounded. That's the difference between a multimillion dollar mansion and something much smaller. Exactly. So, turnover. There was lots of turnover with these discount brokerage accounts, and it was just from hazardous trading.
2: That's right. Some of the
1: turnover was like
2: they turn over the entire portfolio twice a year, which is massive. Selling every single
1: stock you've got, buying and selling twice a year. The next one is overconfidence. So overconfidence is one of those behavioral biases that we've talked about in the past, and it has a major impact on financial decisions. And coupled with free trading costs it can contribute to underperformance overconfidence can't be discounted no for sure i mean we had a client years ago who would look at the paper on the weekend and then call me on monday to do a trade based off of the research that they had done on the weekend and they had this confidence bias that they knew more than the marketplace And I would often talk to this fellow about how, look, if it's printed in the paper, it's already priced into the market. Oh yeah. It's old news. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) There's no way that all of those CFAs out there missed the weekend edition of the Calgary Herald or the (laughs) Globe and Mail. That's right. So there are about 600 actively traded stocks that trade every day in Canada. And in the US, there's about 3,700 publicly listed stocks that trade on the exchanges so the question do-it-yourself investors have to ask themselves is, well, which ones do I invest in? That's got to be something. That's a lot to filter through. Yeah, just because you have access to the, or the ability to trade doesn't mean you know what to trade. So Odin identifies that investors choose the companies that catch their attention. And we might call this familiarity bias. The investors feel more confident when they're familiar with the names of companies that trade. So attention-grabbing stocks are in the news, Stocks experience high abnormal trading volumes, stocks with extreme one day, one month, or one year returns. Like Looking at what something did over the last year doesn't mean it's a good investment for the next year.
2: Exactly. And once a stock's in the news, that again, it just grabs your attention because many people, they'll read the news or they'll watch BNN or CNBC or something and they'll see
1: stocks getting mentioned. And the stocks are getting mentioned for some reason. Yeah. yeah, Something's already happened. (laughs) Or the person mentioning the stock is trying to create something to happen. Sure. You got to ask yourself, if there's a research analyst on, I won't mention the TV show, but on a show, and they're promoting a stock, there has to be an underlying reason. Because if the stock was so good, they would probably keep it all for themselves. So the ugly. So we've talked about the GameStop phenomenon, which is continuing on as we speak, by the way. But this has taken all of the risks of online trading described above, and it's put them on steroids. So you've got this active community of stock traders sharing ideas on this Reddit Wall Street Bets forum using their own language like diamond hands and paper hands. And you've got this unlimited zero cost trading so they can trade it no problem. And you have very little experience in this cohort of people that are, for the most part, trading this short squeeze. And so for every winner that comes out of that, there's a loser. Like somebody bought GameStop at $483 a month ago. And today it's priced at somewhere around, I don't know, $170. Somebody bought it and that means somebody sold it. So somebody won and somebody lost. That's right.
2: right. When you think back to what I had talked about earlier, some of the motivations for being do-it-yourselfers, you can see how like the whole Reddit crowd really falls into that sense of community because here you've got a bunch of like-minded people connecting on Reddit and talking about their investments, and they're all sharing ideas and sharing their great stories on how much, and everybody wants to be part of it. And it's not about saving money here, of course. Well, of course, they've saved money on transactions, but it's also about making lots of money because they think, hey, here's a great opportunity to be part of the crowd, stick it to the short sellers, and make some money while we're at it. And so there's a real
1: camaraderie almost of being part of that group. Well, Daniel Crosby was on our show talking just about that, that it's almost like a social movement that came out of this where you had people that are just looking for something to attach themselves to. Exactly.
2: Let's finish off by looking at some of the reasons why investors may want to use a professional for their investment strategy and financial planning. Looking at the same reasons as do it yourself
1: renovators might want to look at a professional. Now, we should preface this by saying, are we promoting people work with an investment professional, Greg?
2: Well, I think if they can look at their own situation and say, I just don't feel comfortable or confident that I have the tools and the resources and the expertise to do this myself, absolutely. There really are two choices you do it yourself or you use a professional. And I think that's something that people have to decide for themselves. But look at some reasons why you might want to consider a Professional. First of all, we talked about safety. So here we're not talking about falling off ladders. We're talking about hurting yourself financially. If you make a mistake, if you make a bad call or something that doesn't work out as you planned or hope, it could hurt you financially and take a long time to recover. Remember, we talked in a previous podcast about the time cost of being wrong. So if you make a big mistake and underperform the market significantly or one or two years, it could take many years of actually outperforming the market just to catch up to where you would have been had you not made that big mistake. Two is expertise and experience. A lot of advisors not only have years of experience behind them, so they've gone through similar market periods perhaps, sometimes many times over, but many advisors continually upgrade their knowledge and education by attending conferences, getting new certifications, and abilities to do their jobs better.
1: There's an evolution in this world that's continuous. Exactly, and
2: continuous education, continuous improvement is critical. And that expertise could help some people avoid common mistakes and pitfalls that might interfere with their investment success. Quality of work. Well, the quality of a portfolio isn't based just on how the portfolio did last year, but it's really how the portfolio could be expected to perform in the future under a variety of market conditions. We talked a few weeks ago about probability and the importance of understanding its role in expected returns. Luck can work for a portfolio from time to time, but it's not really a long term strategy for success. Yeah. So you have to play the odds and you have to build a high quality portfolio that's expected to perform well in a variety of different market conditions.
1: I can't imagine somebody writing a book on do it yourself investing, make luck your strategy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, another one is what is the true
2: cost? So while using a full service advisor certainly could cost more than doing it yourself, it's important to look at the benefits, which can be both monetary and they can be psychological. So monetary, if you look at the portfolio benefits of being properly invested to begin with, regular rebalancing, attention to tax efficiency, financial planning, all of those could actually generate better returns and not just the same returns at a higher fee that you might sometimes see advertised on commercials. And there's another thing, which is just that whole, the psychological impact of having someone in your court that's looking out for your interests financially and helping you and guiding and providing advice. There's benefits there as well. Time. So this is an interesting one because we actually believe that a well-positioned portfolio should largely be left alone, aside from regular rebalancing, because as Odin pointed out, trading is hazardous to your wealth. So A well-structured portfolio doesn't need to be tinkered with too much other than regular rebalancing. However, the time that you need to put into research and create that initial portfolio could be extensive.
1: And ongoing. And ongoing. I look at that too, like that rebalancing. I've mentioned this before, as we're in the spring season now, finally, and things are warmer here in Calgary, and people are starting to garden. And I look at that rebalancing as like tending your garden. You're just sort of pulling weeds every three to six months and making it better. Exactly. It's a great analogy, actually. Well, thank you. No, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> no, no,
2: I insist. <laughs> and lastly, the right tools. Interestingly, much of the data that we have available as investment advisors, that data is available to anybody online and probably free. If you want to look up performance information for any kind of mutual funds, historical returns of different asset classes, fundamental financial information on companies, you can easily access that information. But being able to take all of that information, which is massive, distill it into an actionable investment strategy is not necessarily that simple. And so being able to use the tools properly takes practice and time. Being able to look through the data to avoid drawing wrong conclusions is also critical, There's a saying, it says, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. And so that's one of those things. And interestingly enough, when people start getting interested in investing, what they do is they start looking for patterns. So what's a pattern? Well, gee, the market did well during this time. What else was going on in the world? And maybe we can find a connection. So it's kind of like buying lottery tickets and having your set of lucky numbers. Well, we know that there's no lucky numbers out there.
1: No, seven.
2: Seven's a lucky well, I, number. I guess it could be, if you're playing craps, I guess. <laughs> but playing the same lucky numbers on a lottery ticket, I mean, there's, as I say, there's no lucky numbers. It's totally random which numbers are drawn out of 45 or however many there are. Well,
1: it's 49 because it's, isn't it oh, like... Picks, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Okay, 49 numbers. <laughs> Unless you're playing a lotto max. I'm not sure if that has the I same number. I don't know.
2: Anyway, the point being is that you can draw wrong conclusions from things that look like there's a pattern and avoiding making those kinds of decisions and using a more academically derived investment strategy is probably going to benefit you in the long run. So that's all I've got to say about do-it-yourself investing. It absolutely is appropriate for many people and probably not appropriate for many others. And so it's important to understand, I guess, what are the benefits and what are the potential drawbacks? And that's what we've tried to point out here.
1: Well, and if you choose to work with a professional or you choose to do it on your own, it's critical that you don't start at the product. Exactly. You need to start from what we've talked about many times over past episodes, the plan. So have this, what we would call a smart plan, a specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and timely plan. Once you've established that, I would counsel people to follow Deming's Next model, which is the plan, do, check, act. You've established the plan, then you need to implement it, but then you got to check on it every once in a while. Right on. And if something is going awry, you might need to act and change course. So I just want to sum up that portion with this, because there's a reason why locksmiths, experienced locksmiths, only take 15 minutes to fix your lock. They've already done all the work. They know what they're doing and they do it quickly. And the tending
2: your garden analogy is spot on. It's not about tearing out the whole garden and starting from scratch. Yeah, It's about starting it with a plan and then making adjustments over time.
1: You mean when you get one weed, you don't tear everything out and then go back to the greenhouse exactly. and buy hundreds of dollars of new plants? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, good one. All right. Well, that was good. Thanks for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to wrap up with, Greg? No, just we're still hopefully in the final stages of this
2: COVID thing, so hopefully everyone will stay safe, stay well, get vaccinated, and things will hopefully be back to normal shortly.
1: That's the hope for sure. All right. Okay, until well, next time. Until next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.